Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. It is Friday. I am Nomiki Konst. So centrist Democrats have to make a decision. Biden and Harris have to make a decision. Do they want to include working class Democrats and progressives, potentially even working class Republicans and of course independents in their coalition? Or do they seriously believe that they can assemble some middle of the road coalition with Steve Schmidt and other homeless Republicans who have been cut loose by Trump and the right wing populist movement, Lincoln Project, you know what I'm talking about. So this is the dead end idea. Let's quickly show what Steve Schmidt's theory is on this. I got to hear what's on your mind about all this. Well, this was a monumental month in the history of the country. Democracy is fueled by faith and belief by the people in the legitimacy of the system. And our system requires both sides in the competition of ideas that's decided in elections. It requires both sides to be willing to lose an election. And if you have one side who is no longer willing to lose an election and won't represent the popular will of the American people, then what you have on American soil is an autocratic political party. And so we have some Republican senators, none of whom covered themselves with glory in any of this, with the exception of Mitt Romney over these last couple of years. At least we have six of them who hold on to the basic tenets of American democracy behind the lines of the autocratic movement. Okay. Right. Really, really a last defense, I suppose, in the Republican Party. Last and then all of the rest of us on the other okay. side of that line. So this is a dead end idea uh, for the Republicans, but also for the Democratic Party and the country. But the Biden-Harris Democrats keep acting like that is their plan. That what Steve Schmidt Republican, former Bush administration uh, official, Lincoln Project founder, scam pack, right? The Democrats keep acting like that's their plan. That's their plan to win, and that's their plan to save this country. Cedric Richmond, Biden's new head of public engagement, attended a Wall Street Journal event in which they call a CEO council summit. Richmond made clear that the public he plans to engage with are the CEOs and other business leaders. Richmond told the CEOs that they will always have an ear and an open door in this White House, the Biden White House, through him. Richmond told them that, and I am going to quote here, quote, nobody is going to persuade me that CEOs in this country are bad people. Sounds familiar. So straight from the heart of the Biden-Harris administration comes Cedric Richmond with a direct effort to link up the heart of the old corporate part of, of the now dead Republican Party. I get why Republicans who can't aid Trump want to do this. But where does it take Democrats? Where does it take this administration in the midst of this crisis? Well, I will tell you where. It takes us to a disaster as a country. Let's start with what Richmond said to the CEOs. He really misses the point, right? I don't really care whether CEOs are good people or bad people. I know their countries, their companies, excuse me, keep doing bad things to working people to our air and our water, to consumers, and even to their competitors. That's why we need to break up Facebook. Some other time we can have a discussion whether uh, with Cedric Richmond and the Wall Street Journal on why these good CEOs do bad things. But right now we have a much more urgent set of challenges. This country is in the worst 
economic crisis since the Great Depression. And it is getting worse by the hour, and neither the government nor the corporate world seems to understand or care. There is a progressive insurgency building in this country because of these crises. And the Democrats' way of dealing with the insurgency is not to welcome it, to open their arms up, to recognize the crisis. Their response to the insurgency is to smear it, suppress it, demonetize it, deplatform it, not give us a seat at the table, a voice, leave it off of cable news and pretend it doesn't exist or can just try to co-opt it. And then expect everyone who is part of that insurgency to vote for them. So that's been working for them for years now, placating to a, a left, but not this left, not this growing left, not in the midst of an economic crisis. So there is a big, big problem right now. If the Democrats do not start in the most basic ways responding to this economic disaster, putting politics aside and power aside and patronage jobs aside, if they don't recognize this crisis and deal with the urgency, if they don't welcome labor into the room, we are headed for an irreversible disaster. This isn't about being nice to progressives. It isn't about giving us a few cabinet positions. This is about embracing progressive actions to heal a deeply broken, unfair, spiraling economy. It is about ending the pandemic in a way that puts equity at the heart of public health. It is about a new order that says racial justice can no longer be deferred or police crime can no longer be covered up. Doing this will forge a realignment of center and left politics that will change our country for generations. But, 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 big but, but not doing this, it isn't a vote for some moderate status quo. I am sorry to tell you, Mr. President-elect Biden, but not pushing major change will not restore the halcyon days when senators actually spoke to each other across the aisle. No, we are way too far gone for that because there is a second insurgency growing. This one, of course, is on the radical right. If the Biden-Harris administration doesn't move quickly and convincingly to get working people back to work and protect them and close the gaps that are making so many people angry, then what we saw in 2016 and 2020 is going to grow. Crazy right-wing populism that is perfectly willing to burn this country down to save it. Listen, I'm not worried about another Trump, a more acceptable, digestible Trump. Mm -mm. I am worried about the right-wing movement that brought him to power. And that is just waiting to swoop in like vultures and pick apart the remnants of the body politic when, of course, Biden and Harris fail to deliver. So by all means, let's, let's have be nice to your local CEO day. But Cedric Richmond's CEOs are not the future of the Democratic coalition or the movement that will stop future fascism. Progressives and our ideas, of course, are the future and they're the solutions. And your failure to embrace us will open the way for an already growing right wing that will make the last four years look like a weekend at the Trump International Hotel. We have a great show for you today. It is Femme Friday. We have Astra Taylor who joins us to discuss debt, taking on debt. And later we chat woke feminism in the cabinet with Jamie Pack and Hadass Thier. We will be right back right after the break.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm excited to have our next guest, Astra Taylor. She is a director. She was behind uh, the film, What is Documentary Film? What is Democracy? She is the co-founder of the Debt Collective and the co-author of Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, we are uh, <laughs> we are in the midst of what is likely to be Great, great Depression 2.0, whether or not our lawmakers recognize it, are feeling it, uh, are willing to put down their ice cream cones and calls with lobbyists to recognize what's happening on the ground, the eviction crisis, the debt crisis, um, the wage crisis, uh, of course, the housing crisis, which goes in line with that. Uh, Astra Taylor is focused around debt, which is just uh, very clearly shackles that are holding down not just younger people when it comes to student debt, but really uh, anybody who is not in a class that <laughs> does not have debt. Uh, Astra, you're on mute really quick. So just, uh, <laughs> there you go. So welcome. Um, you know, let's, let's just talk from the start. What is the Debt Collective? The Debt Collective is a union for debtors. So just like workers join together in a labor union, we believe that debtors should organize, unite collectively to advocate for their interests. And this is a form of coming together, a form of economic power that complements other struggles. So you can be in a labor union and also be in a debtor's union. You can be unemployed and yet still have debt. You can be a student, you can be a retiree. So one of the advantages of organizing around debt, if we can call it that, is that it sticks to you no matter where you go, no matter what your circumstances are. You know, it sticks with people to the grave and sometimes beyond. So we think that working people, poor people can't afford to leave power on the table. Our debts are somebody else's assets. So there's power in those debts if we come together and organize. So um, let's talk about how you guys are structured. Um, is this like a dues paying union Mm -hmm. That's the that is the ambition to be a completely member supported dues paying union. So actually, we just launched in the last few months uh, uh, our union uh, dues collecting page because ultimately, I believe if you know if you're interested in political economy and you think about how um, you know how money works, like I think it's very important that people actually control the groups that they're part of. So I think it's really important that we have organizations that are supported by dues, just like labor unions are, as opposed to being supported by philanthropists, by grants. Uh, so that I, that's critical for long-term sustainability. Um, of course, you know, when you're organizing debtors, you're organizing people who have negative wealth. <laughs> and so right. the thing is that you know, all of our resources. So we offer tools that people can dispute their debts, dispute errors on their credit reports. We're about to launch an anti-eviction tool, right. uh, actually a tool for disputing bail bond and immigration bond debts. Those are all free to use. You don't have to pay, uh, pay dues to join the debt collective. But I think anyone on the left should actually be really concerned about building organizations that are supported by the members and thus accountable to members. That's right. I think that's a really important point. I'm glad that you, met, you, you alluded to the, the industrial complex, whether it's a nonprofit industrial complex or not. Um, a lot of organizations out there are beholden to larger donations that come in, foundations. Uh, the media. And media, exactly. Well, media is an obvious one. <laughs> I mean, even though we are, are, are user-funded, we still use platforms that are controlling our livelihoods. Let's just say it that way. Um, and our ability to get the word out. So uh, Astra, where um, is the majority of the focus right now? What types of debt are you guys focusing on? 
We've made our name uh, organizing around student debt. So the Debt Collective emerged out of Occupy Wall Street. There was something called the Occupy Student Debt Campaign. It was the first time I ever heard people call for student loan cancellation, full stop, cancel it all. It shouldn't exist. And for public college, free to uh, free public college for everybody. Uh, so that's that's sort of our genesis. But we organize around different types of debt. We think about actually the household because there's this lie, right, that our debts are individual. This, this idea that, you know, we, we shake hands with the creditor, we're taking out our debts, uh, you know, autonomously making this choice and thus we have to uphold our end of the bargain. The truth is, you know, and student loans are a good example of this, parents borrow for their children, right? People mortgage their houses so their right. kids can have a chance just of having a decent life. You know, people have to make choices all the time. Do I pay this bill or do I feed my kids, right? Uh, or do I help my family members? So our debts are never individual obligations. They're always bound up with each other. So student debt, though, uh, is a powerful form of indebtedness. It's, it's the main type of debt besides mortgages that regular people hold. And it's so clearly a policy mistake. A generation ago, people went to school for free. They didn't carry these incredible burdensome debt loads. Uh, and also 96% of it is held by the federal government, which means that the minute Joe Biden enters office, that man has power already vested by Congress. So Congress gave the authority to cancel debts back in 1965. He can eliminate it all. It's debt owed to the federal government. It's a major policy mistake. Almost everybody recognizes that compared to the days of Occupy Wall Street when we were Humorous. shouting in the park, right? <laughs> People now yeah. agree there's a crisis here. Well, this is a crisis the Democrats can actually solve. Uh, if they don't, it's an abuse of power. So we're in a major contest right now over student debt. But there are other forms of debt we need to organize around medical debt, right. utilities, uh, even you know predatory auto loans. This is just the beginning of a bigger of a bigger fight. Um, let's just stick to, to student debt for a second because it is getting a lot of news right now because of um, uh, Senator Schumer calling for the elimination of the first fifty thousand dollars of student debt. Uh, I assume that's public debt, not not you know, mm -hmm. whatever the federal government can provide. But you just mentioned that Congress gave the president the ability to eliminate the government to eliminate debt. Um, in 1965. Can you tell, have we ever done that? Is there, is there any yeah. precedent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there sure is. So this authority is called compromise and settlement. So when you grant an entity the ability to produce debt, it's implicit that they also have the ability to cancel it, to cease collections, right? So the Department of Education has this authority by its ability to lend. It also has the ability to compromise, to settle. This is something, though, that was not really explored until one of uh, the co-founders of the Debt Collective, actually, Luke Heron, who's now at Yale Law School, building on work for, uh, by the brilliant Eileen O'Connor, who uh, works at the Project for uh, on Predatory Student Lending at Harvard, started to think, well, hold on, how could, how could this, uh, this authority that is already there actually be used to uh, address this massive and growing crisis? The fact is that compromise and settlement has been used. In fact, it was just used by Donald Trump because Donald Trump uh, did something that, uh, you know, I was actually surprised by and that he suspended universally all student loan collections. And, he, and it actually was revealed in a press conference that his administration used compromise and settlement authority to cancel interest. So the question for the Democrats as they come into office in January is, are you gonna be outdone by Donald Trump? 
We are facing a pandemic, an economic emergency, uh, and the student loan suspension, people not having to uh, send to the federal government 200, 300, 400, $2,000, $3,000 a month, which is what some people uh, actually have to pay, is, the, is you know, basically the difference between life and death, having a roof over your head or not for a lot of people. Um, and allows and that you have money no to- choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, for I mean, I assume anybody who's watching the show <laughs> probably is familiar with the fact that you can't go bankrupt. You can't declare bankruptcy if you default on your debt. You have it tied to you. They will seize your assets before you can pay for your food, your housing. Um, you know, and that's uh, notably how Hillary Clinton thought every millennial was living in their parents' basement uh, because they had to choose between housing or food. Uh- <laughs> And yeah. partly, uh, we have we have Joe Biden partly to thank for the fact that that is also the case for private student loans. Um, you know, he was very instrumental in the 2005 bankruptcy reform. So, you know, he could also make amends uh, there. He owes us <laughs> uh, for his role in the student debt crisis. But you're exactly right. Student loans are very unique in that they are one of the, the main kinds of debts that can't be discharged in bankruptcy. You can never get rid of them. And default, the consequences of default can be incredibly severe. Uh, your credit score, of course, tanks, which means the costs of other kinds of debt go up. You might not be able to get a job. You might not be able to rent an apartment. But in some states, they will actually take away your license, let's say a professional license to you know, perhaps cut hair or to teach. Therefore, you lose your job. What? In some states, they take away your driver's license if you default. Uh, they garnish old people's sense? social security. This is insane. Okay. So you want someone to pay the debt down, but you're going to basically disarm them with any tools that could help them pay down that debt, getting to work. Exactly. It's a bind. So we launched the first ever student debt strike in 2015. That's part of how we put this issue on the national agenda. We launched the student debt strike with people who had attended a predatory for-profit college, Corinthian Colleges, Inc., then students from DeVry, uh, from the Art Institutes, other predatory for-profit colleges uh, began to join us. Of course, those colleges are the ones that have seen the most business since the pandemic started because they're mostly online, et cetera. Um, and Donald Trump and his administration, you know, basically took off what few regulations there were on them. So we launched this strike that won actually a billion dollars of relief uh, and counting to date through various legal strategies from the Obama administration and from Betsy DeVos. But there was one point uh, in 2015 or 16 where the then governor of Florida got on Fox News and actually said to our strikers, yeah, well, we're going to take your driver's licenses away. So, I mean, this is just part of how it's just it, it's emblematic of what a punitive system this is and so unnecessarily punitive. Why should we be punishing people who want to get an education who are told that this is the only way you know, to make more than minimum wage? Why are we garnishing the Social Security of uh, retirees, you know, because they can't pay their debts. So it's all got to stop. That's the debt collective's, you know, position is that we need to admit this is a failure, cancel all of the debt and fix the problem at the source. Um, And that that's, that's the, that is the logical thing to do. It's the economically rational thing to do because it will boost the economy. Of course. Right. (laughs) All of that money will go to spend, you know, on, on the things people need to survive. So it'll create jobs. Some estimates say it'll create a million jobs a year. That was before the pandemic. It'll create more. Uh, they say it'll actually have a bigger effect now. It'll boost GDP. This is a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of misleading arguments out there about how canceling student, reg- student debt is regressive. The fact is student debt is regressive because yeah. millionaires and billionaires don't take out student debt. 
to go to college. That's what being rich is. You know, what's so exactly, it was so interesting to me about this is um, I was trying to think, well, what's the rationale for Wall Street, Chuck Schumer to suddenly be advocating for relieving student debt? Other than smart politics, maybe not wanting to be primaried, whatever, you can look at the basic politics. But ultimately it's in the interest of so many other financial sectors for people to be able to pay off their student debt because clearly that's where folks' money is going to first. And if you can't pay for your rent, it means it hurts the real estate industry. If you can't pay for all the other bills, credit card bills, it hurts that industry. And so I I find it really fascinating about like, okay, now you have like different financial sectors fighting each other and who's going to win? Who's going to win on the chessboard? Well, I think it's a very astute observation. I wish that those, I wish that the capitalist class was divided more and that they were actually coming out and arguing for this. So unfortunately, you know, that is the logic. So I 100% think what you said is really astute that, you know, the sort of um, a building trade should be really into this idea because there's lots of evidence from the New York Fed, for example, that high rates of indebtedness, particularly around student loan, suppress homeownership, right? So yeah, realtors, builders, right? Come People, on, real estate industry. Yeah, <laughs> get on board. Love, you know you love to do this stuff, right? <laughs> but you know, so because I, you know, I think right. That's sometimes changes made when the capitalist class fragments and different pe- different aspects of it are sort of you know uh, having a conflict. But what we're seeing, you know, is not the associations of realtors stepping up, or <laughs> but we are seeing Goldman Sachs, for example, um, and also uh, J.P. Morgan and their policy proposals saying, "Oh, sure, maybe a little bit of you know moratoriums, maybe a few suspensions here, but don't cancel the debt." Because I think what they see is that there are bigger implications because they they very much were happy after two thousand eight when the banks got bailed out, right? When the financial sector was able to get aid. They were very happy uh, in the spring of this year when the corporate debt market was stabilized in an unprecedented way when the federal government bought up billions of dollars of bad corporate debt. Uh, They do not want little people to know that actually debts can be renegotiated, written off, because you know the fact is that that's what that's what debt is. Debt is something that is negotiable. But we are in a paradigm, and we have been for a long time, where that only applies to the rich and the powerful. And so, what the debt collective says is, well, what debtors need to do is organize, and to wield our collective leverage, so that so that we are able also um, to demand write downs, write offs, and the abolition of these odious debts. So um, I know it's not a public university, but Columbia right now, uh, students at YDSA are organizing a tuition strike. We've covered this on, on previous episodes. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very uh, courageous move, right? Um, Columbia's tuition is, is extremely high. <laughs> and of course, the housing in New York City is extremely expensive. And, uh, but it, I mean, do students, does anybody in this process, whether it's a tuition strike or other strikes, there must be some sort of fear. What is, what is, the, what is the security that you offer folks um, in, 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 in being parts of these strikes? Because there's no necessarily clear like end goal here and it could have a, a, a deeply horrifying, like the consequences could be horrifying for somebody's livelihood. 
Yes. So two parts of that. First, I want to say thank you for lifting up the Columbia student strike. I think that it's actually an amazing development because if the if we as organizers want to win things, then we have to wield economic power when and where we can. So that means that we have to engage in things like rent strikes. We have to engage in labor strikes, right? And we have to have tuition strikes as well. We have to understand political economy. We have to look at budgets, right? Figure out where we have leverage. So I think it's really critical. And I, I cheer them on. And it is risky, right? Labor actions are risky. There's always the risk when you are actually trying to build power of retaliation, of not winning. Um, with, with the student debt strike that we launched in 2015, and actually we are launching a, a new uh, iteration, a new strike to force the Obama, I'm sorry, force the Biden administration to act. I'm having flashbacks here because, you know, it's like I already spent um, those it's years under the Obama minutes. administration. Yes. <laughs> not fighting. like much has actually changed. Right. Zach, no. <laughs> We're going back, you know, and, and basically t staying to this ostensibly democratic administration, like here's all this power you have, you're not using and trying to force them to use it. Um, so one thing we do is uh, we have focused a lot of our organizing efforts on the people who are actually already experiencing the most disastrous consequences. Something like 1.2 million people a year default on their student loans pre-pandemic, right? Of course, people have been spared that consequence by this uh, suspension, but we'll see what happens in 2021. What that means is we're trying to politicize a condition people are already in. You, 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 know, you feel terrible, you've defaulted, you're suffering these consequences. Well, don't have shame, have indignation. And if you band together, you can at least try to have a political voice. We also recommend that people strategically enter forms of non-payment that are available to them. So, you know, in the student debt space, that means forms of forbearance, income-driven income repayment, et cetera, things that buy time so that we can fight for a political solution to this and the abolition of these debts. So these are things, you know, these risks are real. The fact is though, millions and millions of people are already suffering these consequences. So I think a huge challenge for us and one of our missions is to reach out to those people and to say, we see where you are. There's a whole ideology here that makes you feel stigmatized. It makes you feel ashamed. It makes you feel that this is your fault. Well, guess what? It's not. And it is not something where if you just stop to use the millennial cliche, stop eating that avocado toast or stop buying lattes, you know, and scrimp and save, you'll get out of this. We only get out of this together. So that's why our slogan at the Debt Collective is you are not alone, but A space L-O-A-N, right? That there's part of this is about the way debt is actually almost a, a weapon that atomizes us, right? Again, it's that myth that you've agreed to this arrangement. So you made a choice as opposed to the the fact you're actually forced into it because you're underpaid at your job and you live in a society where there are no public goods and no public services. So we're not in debt because we live beyond our means. We're in debt because we're denied the means to live. The healthcare, the education, the decent housing that we are actually entitled to as human beings. I'm so happy you brought up housing. Um, before, before we wrap up, but, you know, millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans, possibly even more, are facing eviction January 1st. Uh, you know, we've yet to see any serious proposals and how many moratoriums are going to be um, continued in, in cities and states across America and whether there's going to be any sort of assistance or response or delay uh, from the federal government. But 
I'm, I mean, when I'm off air, this is what I'm talking about nonstop. Uh, I, I'm looking at the numbers in New York, the numbers that we do know, whether it's just small businesses or, or people who have been evicted legally, even under the moratorium because of previous uh, situations, like we're in a really, really rough spot. And I feel like our government, when I led the top of the show saying like, wake up, you don't know what's going on. This is this is like Hooverville. I, I I can't imagine anything other than that at this point. When you have tens of millions of Americans who are going to be losing their homes, and the federal government just completely being disconnected, even though ten months has gone by. So, what are you doing right now about um, about rents, the eviction crisis? Uh, I don't know if there's a small business aspect to this too, but you know some of the numbers coming in are eighty percent of New York City small businesses didn't pay their rent in October alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're to- you're right. I mean the the moral offense of this is so immense, right? I mean it's like it's that people at this level are facing eviction and homelessness. Um the debt collective, you know, is working with various other groups. We are building a tool. The the most concrete thing we're doing right now is that we have just finished building a tool that is for LA County, which is a huge <laughs> a huge community. It's tens of millions of people um, where something like 400,000 households are at imminent threat of eviction. And what this tool does is it allows people to answer their eviction notice, uh, which is, inc- of course, the, you know, we've made incredibly difficult. People t- could only do it in person. Uh, oh, yeah. There was, there's, the there's that aspect the, the, the eviction courts are backed up too. They're going to be backed up. So even if you're evicted, even if you're willing to pay, able to pay, do whatever it is to recuperate your loss, uh, whatever. Yet the, the, the process, the lines in the courts are so long. Yep. 100%. Sorry, I just want to mean it. No, I mean, that's, a, that's exactly it. And so there, you know, then people, it's $500 to try to challenge your eviction. So if you have, why, then you'd pay your rent. So we're building technology to at least automate this process, apply for a fee waiver. We're hoping to uh, expand this to the state of California. That's the next phase. And then to apply this to other communities. But of course, we can't just legally dispute these evictions. I mean, a lot of evictions are illegal. What we need is a movement of people occupying homes, resisting eviction, declaring strategic rent strikes, and looking ahead. I mean, not to add another dimension to this, but looking ahead to what happens after this, because what happened after 2008 was that Wall Street landlords were able to buy up huge tracts of single family homes, right, and become these Wall Street landlords, and that is going to happen. So thinking about how we prevent that and put on the, at least popularize the idea that housing should be a right, that we should have, um, that these Properties should not be owned by Wall Street investors and speculators, but should be owned by communities that maybe our homes should not have to be assets, but actually homes that we live in, right? Instead of saying, I pray this goes up. I pray I'm able to one day buy a home so it goes up in value so I can retire, <laughs> right? So there's there's something so broken about our system, but it's going to take... It's going to take people fighting back. I mean, Ilan Omar has proposed a bill that that you know says uh, cancel rent. I mean, so this idea at least is is out there and has some sort of legal legitimacy, but it's going to take mass organizing and a, and a mass movement. And I think it's going to be the number one thing on people's minds, right? Which is how do I how do I stay sheltered? Um, and those of us who are trying to uh, organize people really need to organize around that immediate need first and foremost, right? Because it's going to be huge. 
what's so crazy about that is even uh, so let's flash forward. If we go down the path that we did in 2008, where uh, big bank banks buy up smaller or middle midsize or even large, um, uh, you know, properties from developers, they even have the, I mean, if they get bailed out, they have the ability to cancel people's rent. So, you know, there's, there's multiple angles that this could be, I mean, of course we don't want it to go that way, but there's but I think you're right. Any, any aid to, uh, to these Wall Street landlords or any age to, to, you know, mortgage holders, right, to the banks needs to come with conditions. Exactly. And the conditions need to be don't evict your tenants, right, and provide rent relief. So again, this goes back to what happened in March of this year when we had this huge, uh, when we had the first big, you know, stimulus package, a recovery package, and uh, the government rushed in to stabilize, again, the corporate debt market. Well, there should have been conditions on that you know, to keep people employed, um, to also uh, not undermine unions, to have environmental sustainability. So there's, there are so many forms of leverage. There are so many good ideas out there. And one is, yeah, exactly. You know, when you go and rescue this sector that will probably be rescued, then (laughs) make sure that part of the, part of the conditions are that, you know, that millions of families don't end up on the streets. It shouldn't be so hard. (laughs) I mean, it's hard because there's interests in mind. It's yes, not because exactly. they don't understand. I'll, I mean, they also don't understand. Yeah. But um, this, once the Biden administration uh, is inaugurated, w- what are your plans to push back? Is there anything on the table? Absolutely. The Debt Collective is launching a student debt strike. So this is a strategy that we did in the past under the Obama administration, working with students from predatory for-profit colleges. It won real mass debt cancellation. Again, over a billion dollars, which you know, for a lot of people that was getting their futures back, getting their lives back. We can absolutely win this. The conversation has changed in massive ways since we began demanding full student debt cancellation and the heat is on the Biden administration, he's going to be facing, you know, an obstructionist Congress, most likely, right? Are we going to let Mitch McConnell (laughs) dash every um, solution to the crisis we're in, even if, you know, and, and sure, there's some, some possibility that the Democrats will take the Senate. I hope that they do. But the fact is that Biden has the authority to cancel student debt. It has enormous benefit to the society as a whole, and it's gonna take a movement to make him do it. So we really invite everyone to check out debtcollective.org, to sign up. If you're in any form of non-payment, to come out and join the strike, right? To polit- I think this is so important, but politicize your condition. If you can't pay your student loans, right. then, you know, then don't be silent about it. This is a very important moment to come out and be public about your need or your family's need or, you know, a friend's need for debt cancellation, because I really think this is critical. This is going to happen soon or else we're going to miss this window. So, you know, people need to be be loud um, and say, as the title of the Debt Collective's recent manifesto, can't pay, won't pay, right? We shouldn't have to pay these debts. They should be canceled and it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not alone. There's a stigma attached to it. We all know Mm -hmm. um, to any debt, not just uh, student loan debt, but this is the stakes are too high right now. And everybody's futures are tied to this, this collective action, essentially um, being successful. Astra Taylor, such a fascinating uh, project. Uh, We're going to put all of your information in the info section on YouTube so people can check it out and also on Patreon. Uh, We'd love to have you back on to see how you guys are are doing uh, in this process and how we can help out as a, as a movement. So thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Solidarity. Solidarity. Take care.
All right. We will be right back to talk about uh, woke feminism in the Biden administration because, you know, that's the priority right now. So got to make sure the lean in ladies get their spot at the table. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Hey guys, this, this is that time. Uh, make sure to smash that like button. Get in the chat, start debating us. Uh, if you have not already joined our friends and family indoctrination program, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We bring them in with some like Democratic Party stuff and then we they leave full on Jamie Pack. <laughs> uh, so join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for as low as a $5 a month. Moving all the way up, you get swag, you get extra, you know, interviews, all the stuff that you get um, as a patron at uh, the different levels. You can go check it out there. All right. I am very excited to have our Friend Friday panel here. Um, we have Jamie Pack, who is the producer and contributor to the uh, Majority Report, and she is the co-host of The Antifada. And we have Adas Thier back on. She's an author and activist. Her latest book is A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. I have to give you a little bit of a shout out. I might get in trouble for this. But my friend's daughter is 13 years old and she is reading your book right now after seeing wow. our interview. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's how you do it. That's indoctrination. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So I want to start off um, with the Biden administration picks. I mean, that's basically what we're going to talk about. But can we roll that clip uh, from Nicole Wallace? Just so excited about the woke queen. Yes, queen feminism that has hit the Biden administration. It's going to solve everything. Let's play that clip. I'm so excited about this team of women, this team of moms, this um, smart and accomplished group who will be not just speaking for the president, which is um, Dana Perino had that post, Edie Myers had that job, but really coming up with strategies for how to communicate with the whole country. Joe Biden has said he will be a president for all Americans, even the ones who didn't vote for him. And this team will be responsible, Aisha, for crafting those messages for the president and vice president. What do you think? Well, I think this is fantastic. And I want to thank you, Nicole, for leading with resumes, um, because it is exciting that we have such a diverse cabinet thus far um, and appointees thus far. I love that it's a bunch of women who are going to be uh, doing the communication strategy. But it's also important to remember that these are people who have a breadth and depth of experience. Ashley Atien, uh, who you just put up a picture of there, actually ran point for Nancy Pelosi on the Hill for many years uh, as her lead communications person there. And she was the person who crafted all of the uh, impeachment uh, narrative and language. You've got a lot of people on the team who know what they're talking about and how to connect with voters, which is the thing that's really important. And yes, I do appreciate that there are a lot of moms. There are women from all walks of <laughs> life who can connect with and empathize with what we all are going through and what the conversations we just had at Thanksgiving uh, around the kitchen table. And so to be able to communicate in a way that is connected, humanizing, and full of life experience Experience, I think is going to be really powerful for this administration. Let's stop. And we didn't mention uh, in a second. Um, Kaylee McEnany, a woman, has a child, is married, connects with a good chunk of America who believes in her, her ideal. I, all right, Jamie, I see you're just like, mm -hmm. let's take your take on this. I mean, first of all, I feel very honored that you would think of me as an avatar for radicalization. So thank you. 
um, that is, I, I've worked really hard to create that impression about myself. So thank you. Um, okay. Obviously this is crap, right? Like there's nothing wrong with representation. Sure. Is it better to have a diverse array of people administering society than it is to have only white men? Yeah, I guess a little bit. But if that's your only progressive politics, I'm sorry, that's just not going to cut it. You know, like I've been listening to a lot of interviews with Cornell West and Boots Riley lately, and they're very fond of saying, you know, black faces in high places um, doesn't necessarily translate to black liberation. And I feel the same way about female faces in high places, you know, like it doesn't matter if the people in power are what what they are, right? If they're still doing um, austerity, if they're still um, doing wars of empire, and if they're not representing the average person who is very much struggling right now. So, you know, to quote a phrase from the great Tithi Bhattacharya, um, I don't really care if what your progressive politics amounts to is more women prison guards, more vegans in the IDF. Exactly. And she's been on our show. Go check out her book, Feminism for the 99%, uh, she co-authored with uh, two other great feminists. Hadass, um, I, I feel like all we need is just to have like a little uh, leaning in in the cabinet. You know, it just takes, it takes Karine Jean-Pierre to just lean in and say, okay, guys, we have to not be so heavy on the austerity and that'll do it. Right. You know? yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the height of tokenism and it's, you know, like Jamie was saying, a very low bar. I mean, the communications team, you know, hooray. Um, and I, if you hear squealing in the background, that's my credentials. I also have a mother to a young child. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is just, what are they communicating? What are the policies? You know, that's what matters. What's going to improve people, women's lives? You know, what's going to improve women's lives is universal health care. What's going to improve women's lives, you know, so that they don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about our health care and our child's health care if we should lose our job like millions of people are doing. You know, stimulus spending, eviction moratoriums, you know, women around the world not getting droned and sanctioned. You know, this is what's going to actually matter to women's lives and to have you know, like you said, women's faces in high places, that's not going to cut it. I, you know, I'm a, uh, uh, was came of age in the, in the 90s, right? And so etched into my memory is Madeleine Albright, who was the Secretary of State under Clinton when they asked her, you know, is it worth it? hundred, we've heard that half a million Iraqi children have died because of, uh, because of sanctions on Iraq. And she said, yeah, I think the price is worth it. You know, that's, what we get for, you know, femininity in, you know, matters of defense. This is just uh, absolutely appalling that that would be our, you know, our bar for what a feminist leadership would look like. I mean, she also said there's a special place in hell for a woman who doesn't uh, support other women, unless they're Iraqi women, of course. Right. <laughs> um, you know what also just stands out to me, and this, we, this, this segment just highlighted the communications panel, but there's also, uh, as Jamie said, there's the whole empire supporting building imperialistic kind of uh, militaristic um, revolving door of women I, that have either worked directly in lobbying for, for drones uh, that have worked for, you know, 
companies that are like half lobbyist, half think tank. I mean, there's a real problem here um, on this in in the transition team. We saw in the lead up and people were like, well, that's just a transition team. See what it comes, what they come up with. And then of course, to all of the pointees, um, not to mention Nira Tandon, who's running on her personal experience of being on food stamps and welfare and then completely forgot it as soon as she went you know, into the administration. But what concerns me the most right now. And I think it's a great pressure point for the left, if there's any pressure point for the left right now, is in the middle of this economic crisis, when the majority of frontline workers, whether it's teachers, home health care workers, domestic workers, flight attendants, they're from unions that are made up of women, led by women and majority women of color. And completely out of this conversation, I've, I've barely heard the Biden administration discuss labor in this economic crisis. And to me that, I think that's worse than Obama. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that era and there was at least sort of a kind of dance that they were playing on stage. But of course we saw that how that played out. Jamie, what's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not a labor journalist, but as far as I understand it, Joe Biden panders to the labor movement, but absolutely will not deliver. You know, if Obama didn't do card check, I think it's safe to say that that is also off the table for the Biden administration. Um, But labor is super important. And you're saying you mentioned pressure points, right? I think that is one eternally the area of leverage that the working class has in this country and around the world. You know, we have the power to shut down the flow of capitalist production. And when that happens, um, Biden and all of his, you know, neoliberal picks will have no choice but to pay attention because that is ultimately what they serve, the accumulation of capital. So we really got to get back to basics, you know? Hadass, what's your take? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And, you know, I think that as much as, you know, we can talk about the, the makeup of the cabinet and so on, it, what really matters is, you know, the policies because the cabinet members are going to follow Biden, not the other way around. And so the question is, yeah, how do we mobilize our side, our, you know, union members and people who uh, can, can unionize um, to actually... Uh, put pressure from from the other end because we know how much pressure Biden gets from the people that actually got him elected, the campaign contributions, the you know cor- corporate uh, cash, pharmaceutical industry, et cetera. Uh, but we need to actually mobilize our our end of things. And so, like the labor movement, you know, the fact that women at best I think now make eighty one cents to the man's dollar, but that's going to get much worse through this pandemic because actually women are being forced out of the workforce. Uh, at, at higher rates than than men, and so that's going to put us back even further. And so, if we don't organize our side, um, you know, that's that's really what what it comes down to. And it's not just—I mean, women hold more debt. Women, um, obviously, there's there's finally a conversation about uh, a lack of pay and household duties, and how, especially during the pandemic, you know, so many women. There was a Washington Post story yesterday that talked about a woman who had to quit her job uh, because because she had to take care of her child and she lost childcare. The childcare um, uh, location, it's the business shut down, and so she quit her job, and so she didn't get unemployment. And so she, it, it, she's re- the result is now she's stealing baby formula from Walmart, and this is a huge crisis. So uh, the burden is is already much heavier for women 
um, undocumented women, women of color, uh, the most. Undocumented women, I, I don't even know what the numbers are right now, but I'm very curious to see how just just how real this is going to get and when they're going to actually recognize that austerity is not going to get us out of this crisis. So my question is, um, if women in labor were to unite, if there was some sort of, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned Tithi and, and there was this, the women's strike that occurred, I think two or three years ago, I can't remember. Um, but it, I feel like if there was a way to highlight and to really push and embarrass the Biden administration, his cabinet, I can't see any other more obvious way than through the women, the frontline women who've been abandoned in an economic crisis. And if they unified, if you had certain unions come together, whether it's have a march or a labor strike or even a press conference, frankly, uh, to shine a light on just how ignorant they've been um, throughout this entire process. So, I mean, how realistic do you think that would be, Jamie? I mean, it's certainly a long-term project, right? Um, one thing that comes to mind is the idea of the mass strike for reproductive justice, which I know the uh, DSA Socialist Feminist Working Group has been working on. And it's it's a big project. It's a long-term project, right? Because class consciousness is um, pretty low in this country right now. And depoliticization is a huge huge problem um, among, you know, the class of people that is going to need to rise up in order to take back uh, power over the world and over their lives. But I I think, sadly, um, this administration has already shown that it's fairly shame proof, right? Like we had the largest uprising in U.S. history against the police and police violence. And how did Joe Biden respond? He chose a prosecutor as his running mate like see it's a black woman that's what you guys want right like that's exactly the kind of treatment that this is before he'd even won the election you know that's the exact kind of treatment that the left and that the working class can expect from him I mean, he promised to veto medicare for all during a pandemic when uh, 12 million people to date have lost their health insurance. So I don't really think that this administration can be shamed. Um, I, I think perhaps it'll serve a sort of a, a political education purpose for all the people who still maybe believe that the Democratic Party as currently constituted represents their interests, right? Showing the distance between the brand and, you know, what they're actually doing. But, you know, persuasion can only go so far, right? If everyone became a communist tomorrow, wouldn't necessarily result in communist revolution, right? We still have to build organizational power and institutional power. And, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's the only way we're going to win. So, yeah, if we we need to inject feminism into the labor movement, and it's already there in large measures. Um, and, and we need to unite all these struggles together because the ways that capitalism is interlinked with uh, with patriarchy and with white supremacy, um, you really can't separate those out from each other. My concern, though, is do we have time? I mean, we keep talking about, I, I hear it all the time, oh, we're wearing... Jamie, you and I are on Majority Report. Uh, I'm on every week. My big frustration is, well, they gave us some. I mean, it's not as bad as it could be. And what do you expect? We lost. And all we have to do is get elected, you know, more, more, more progressives in Congress. We don't have time. We are entering. We don't know the numbers yet, but my prediction is it's Great Depression 2.0. And there's not enough time to build the institutional power to push back. So what path is there in the short run 
that could potentially, I mean, what are the, are there any pressure points at us? Is there any, any hope, please? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's the million dollar question for sure. And I think that's what everyone is asking because I agree, you know, I think that I do think class consciousness is with us, but I think that is an uh, largely ideological and, and not enough organizational. Um, I think, you know, more and more people are absolutely understanding that the system is stacked against us. I mean, it's hard to see otherwise. Um, and I would just add to the list that you um, listed out before, Nomiki, about, you know, undocumented women and all the ways that the pandemic is impacting women um, most you know, most, uh, I would just add to that also the, um, and I don't know the numbers, but the, the, the women that are, um, living in abusive situations, um, you know, I've been doing some interviews over the last few weeks of unemployed people from around the country. And one woman that I spoke to who I think, you know, there's, there's probably, you know, thousands or if not tens of thousands, uh, like her is in living in an abusive home with, along with her daughter was saving up money to, to move out, to find a place for her and her daughter, and has absolutely lost all of her savings, all of her credit, has no way out and is trapped. Um, you know, and that is a situation that women are facing around the country. I think ideologically, people get that. People understand um, that the system is stacked against us. And I think the question, the million dollar question is, how do we organize in time, like you're saying? And I, I don't know that, you know, I don't think there are any easy answers, unfortunately. Uh, but I do think that, you know, that something's got to give and that uh, that there will be, I mean, in the way that this country exploded in the summer around Black Lives Matter, that I think that we're going to see more explosions like that because there's no way around it, you know? So I think that we are going to see more explosions. And the question for us as people on the left, as people that help to organize, is how do we, you know, move from, from those flashpoints into uh, getting people into organizations, getting people into unions, getting people into um, the kind of discussions with each other that will will move us forward. Jamie, do you have any final thoughts? Well, I think Hadass just said it very well. You know, unfortunately, there really are no shortcuts to what we're trying to do. And, you know, I, I am somewhat uh, inspired by, you know, the rather slow but real growth of the squad. You know, maybe that will give us a little more space in which to operate. Um, at, at the same time, uh, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is being disciplined very heavily right now. You know, they got owned. And it like there is there's no way around it. Like it is a long-term project of building power and, you know, it's people have been trying really hard for uh, many years now. And certainly I'm happy to see the DSA um, getting involved in all different areas, like, you know, from housing to racial justice to immigrant justice and like really trying to put pressure on the people in power at the same time that we're building our own institutional power independently of the Democratic Party and of, you know, capitalists in general. Um, but yeah, in the short term, it's looking it's looking pretty bleak right now. But that doesn't mean that we should give up. That means that we should try a lot, lot harder and not give up because 
you know, the stakes are so, so high right now. People are dying every single day of this disease and people were dying already before the pandemic of uh, malnutrition. People did not have access to food, to healthcare, to all of these things. So I hope going forward, um, at least some of these progressive politicians will push a more um, holistic vision of what health even means, because, you know, the Biden pandemic response plan might be competent bureaucracy in the narrow vision of, you know, disease treatment or whatever, but it does nothing to look at the health impact of housing, um, health care, all of these things, you know, institutional racism, all of these things that we're going to need to look at if we actually want a healthy society. I think um, just on a final note, Hadass, I'd love to hear your thoughts. My, my, what's so strange to me is these are not idiots. I mean, uh, the neoliberals, uh, the, the, the neoliberals that grew out of the emerged out of the mid seventies, early seventies, you know, that was a political thought experiment, right? They really um, organized in response to, you know, maybe the a growing left at the time, it was a thought out theory, failed theory, but um, neoliberalism obviously started before them, but at least in the Democratic Party. I think what like is so strange to me is clearly they have to know they're just by every time they try to defeat the left or not give any sort of support to working people and keep leaning towards supporting capital, they're just radicalizing folks. And I don't understand how they think this is a smart path for them. So I don't know, final thoughts on us before we wrap up. Well, I think, unfortunately, they've seen the way that their policies radicalize people, but they haven't been made to pay the price for it. And until they're made to pay the price for it, they're going to keep going because, honestly, the system works for them. And even when the system is in crisis, it works for them. I mean, look at the look at the state of the stock market. You know, um, the business can boom while millions of people suffer. And those two things don't necessarily contradict each other. And so as long as they're able to get away with it and as long as we don't make them pay a price through our, you know, our power as workers, through strike actions, through our, um, you know, mass mobilizations, um, through, uh, through making them pay the price politically, um, none of these things will change um, until, until they have to change. Well said. Jamie Peck, Rastier, thank you for joining us for Fun Friday. So fun, so fast. I wish we could do this for like three hours. <laughs> Maybe we don't will someday. <laughs> be well, be safe, and uh, most likely we'll see you after the holidays. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Talk to you soon. All right. Special shout outs to our wise solar panels on the White House 2021. I don't even know if they'll give us that. You guys are feel, feel free to go if you have to go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's going to even give us solar panels. He'll probably like build an oil rig outside the White House and be like, <laughs> compromise. Uh, Tony Sparks, thank you so much for the super chat love. Wow, that is going to go a long way. Trust me, it will. And um, always, always, always a pleasure to have Harvey K in the live chat. He wasn't there yesterday. We missed him. Uh, I'm hoping, I look forward to hearing his thoughts on yesterday, but I hope he was debating in the live chat today. And thank you to everybody in the live chat, especially MIDI doctors for working those al algorithms, always tire tirelessly working the algorithms. Huge, huge, huge thanks to Bob and Chokin for keeping the chat room troll free. And Prairie Fire Kowalski, thank you so much, says, uh, great show. Here's some cash for the indoctrination program. Also, my first, my first video on Prairie Fire should be out next week. Awesome. Drop that in the chat when it's out. We'd love to take a look at it. All right, to everybody else, have a wonderful weekend. Be well, be safe, wear your mask, 
social distance, you know the jam. We will see you on Tuesday right here at 3 p.m. Thanks. Thank you.